we pray. Father, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. I heard it said that if church members really want to get to know each other better, the best way to make that possible is not actually through social gatherings like a potluck. It's not done through Easter parties or game nights. It's not strictly about any kind of gathering for fun, but rather the place where Christians get to know each other the best is the prayer meeting. There is something about prayer that connects us unlike anything else. It opens us up. And when we are being honest in our conversations with each other and prayer requests, we know that it really does show us a dimension of church that's unlike anything in the world. Now, I'm not excluding getting together around a table. In fact, I very much promote that, the idea of breaking bread together. But I would add that unless it leads us into prayer, all the social events in the world would do us no good. Prayer brings us to God, brings God before us, and it brings us together before God. And so as a pastor, the way that I get to know each of you better is not only when I'm mingling after church or sitting with you at a potluck table. That helps to get to know your story, get to know what's going on. But it's those times when you ask for prayers. That's the time when I really get to know you. And so for every one of you, there's an opportunity to get to know each other more. And it's this prayer meeting. More than just, I'll pray for you. This is about, let's pray. However, Christians tend to struggle with this one. Christians tend to feel, oftentimes, like they're not living up to their prayer life. They're not doing it right. They're not doing it enough. They're feeling frustrated or even embarrassed about whether they're good enough, they can say the right things, and we all want to be better at prayer. There's probably nothing else that Christians long for outside of heaven to get better at. And I would say that in my experience, one of the top reasons we end up feeling like this is because we get the idea that prayer is about us. We think that prayer is something I need to do. And I need to do it a certain way, with certain words, asking for certain things, and finding certain outcomes. And really, the disciples were no different. They felt the same way, and they struggled to pray, which is why they had to ask Jesus on one occasion to teach them. They don't just ask him how to pray, but they ask him to teach them to pray. And what does Jesus do? In response, he gives them the Lord's Prayer. When you look at the Lord's Prayer, you see there's not a whole lot there. 
There's seven short little prayers, seven petitions. There's nothing about very specific about praying for cancer, healing broken friendships, dealing with lies and betrayal, trouble with stress at work, chronic anxiety. But we're missing the point if that's what we think all the Lord's Prayer is. It's not just that Jesus gives us the words to pray. What is so special about the Lord's Prayer is, first of all, the mystery that Jesus is praying at all. That Jesus would be so human, so weak and frail and needy that he would pray in the first place. That's a mystery. And add to that the miracle that Jesus would not only pray, but he would pray with us and for us. And so we're discovering through Jesus, by listening to Jesus and seeing him pray, that there's a whole other dimension to prayer that's more than just the words you're reciting off the page. Tonight we come to our last in our series, Abiding with Jesus in the Upper Room. We've spent six weeks now, and each prayer meeting that we've had on Wednesday night has been about 45 minutes to an hour. So we've been with Jesus in the upper room for about the exact same amount of time that he would have been with his disciples. Five or six hours. And when you come and put it all together and you come to the end of what Jesus is teaching his disciples... You've had dinner, you've had wine, you've had your feet washed, you've broken bread, you've heard his teachings, and now at the very end, you hear him pray. And you discover through John that abiding with Jesus becomes the most intimate in our lives, not just by seeing what happened, but by listening to him pray. It culminates in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus is not just giving us the words of the Lord's Prayer, but the Lord's Prayer in its deeper sense here. Jesus addresses his Heavenly Father. This prayer can be broken down into three parts. The first part is in verses 1 through 5, dealing with his relationship with the Father directly. And himself. The second part is dealing with his immediate family, his disciples. And the third part is then dealing with all his people, those who are yet to be born, those who are yet to come, including you. He begins with his relationship with the Father, and he prays, glorify your Son. Actually, as you look through this text, there's not that many requests to For the father to do something, a lot of it is expounding his relationship with the father. And the first is to glorify Jesus. Glory is one of those words in the Bible where we get a sense of it, but we're not quite sure if we're fully understanding what it means. We have a sense that glory is something very important, something very weighty, a heavy matter. In fact, in the Old Testament, that's what it meant. It meant something heavy, something weighty, something so valuable that 
It impacts you. It, it is laid on you, and it has a brightness and radiance like a king on a throne. So you can imagine that king sitting on the throne with a royal scepter in his hand, a crown on his head, light streaming into his palace, and he's beaming with his glory, with his riches and gold and silver surrounding him. That king on the throne is representing glory in two basic ways that the Bible pictures it. The first is his authority, and the second is his visible presence. So glory is the authority of the king to do what the king does, and then it is the visible presence of the king that in fact strikes awe into you when you're in his presence. In the story of Moses and the golden calf, you find the glory of the Lord is presented before Moses. After the people have sinned and they've worshipped the golden calf, Moses goes to the Lord praying, show me your glory so that we know you will be with us. In other words, invite us into your palace, into your throne room, where we can have access to who you really are and talk to you. That's what Moses is asking. Moses wants to address the Lord directly. And the basis for this, the Lord grants it on the basis that Moses has his favor. And the Lord reveals himself, but not his whole self. He reveals a portion of himself. He says to Moses, no one can see me and live. And instead hides Moses in a cave and passes by. And just so Moses can catch a glimpse of him from the cave, his brightness, his radiance, his weightiness, he proclaims his name and shows to Moses that the Lord will not abandon Moses or his people. In John's gospel, then, the word glory is meant to help us pick up on that picture, to remind us that the name of God that was spoken to Moses is now taken on flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory through Jesus. And Jesus prays to the Father, he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth. So Jesus' work was to glorify the Father, to give witness to the glory of the true King of heaven, the Father in heaven, by the way Jesus faithfully lived his life. But yet, it was never the full glory. Instead, it was like being hidden in a cave, and we can only look out and catch a glimpse of how good God is, how gracious he is, how loving he is by looking at Jesus. Think of what Jesus is praying for when he is praying that he could return to the Father and receive back his glory. The opposite of glory is suffering. Think of the depth of Jesus' experience for him to have had the glory of the Father before the world existed and now come into our existence, the fallen existence of humans. We can hardly even fathom what this was like. I heard one parable of something like a fitness athlete coming down from the gym on the third floor of some busy building. And as he's coming down the elevator, the elevator opens to a room of a smoker's convention. 
And the smokers come into the elevator and, and they're smoking away and here's this perfectly fit athlete trying to take care of himself and he's invaded by smokers. And of course, they don't notice the difference. They don't smell it. They don't notice the coughing. They don't notice there's something wrong here. But to him, it's obnoxious. Jesus would be more sensitive to the atmosphere of sin, to the sickness that we're experiencing than we can ever imagine. And so for him to pray, longing to return to the glory of the Father, is saying that I've finished the work you've given me to do and I've, I've faithfully carried out your will. Now, do as you've promised. Which means that Jesus receives his scepter, his crown, and authority. He receives that authority and glory to give eternal life to whomever he wills. So he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is the glory of Jesus. For him to be crowned, for him then to be able to welcome you into his kingdom. The second thing he prays for is to keep those whom he's brought into his kingdom. As you look at verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying and he's building up this understanding of who his disciples are. In all of his prayer, you notice there's very few actual requests. A lot of it is more developing an understanding of his relationship with God and his relationship with you. It's more about who he's praying for than what he's praying for. In verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. You see, Jesus is thinking so deeply about prayer that it's not about just asking one thing. It's about him meditating on everything that he's done with his disciples, his whole ministry in life. How they have listened to him. He's manifested the Father's name. They know everything that has come from the Father has come from Jesus. He's given them the word, and they've received it, and they've known the truth and believed. When he comes to the actual requests, it's very simple. Keep them. Here Jesus is praying for you. To keep something is to protect it, like a keepsake. Maybe it's a keepsake you could think of at home, that a father or uncle or grandfather, an antique that's been handed down, some fine china, something you want to cherish and protect. And Jesus says to keep them from the evil one, to keep them from the corruption of the world, to keep them from being destroyed but Jesus isn't going to protect us by taking us to heaven. 
He's not going to protect you by excluding you from trouble or sickness or difficulty. What he does is he protects you through the trouble. And he does it through his word. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is really that keeping work of the Holy Spirit. It's like purifying a room of smokers so that there's no more smell. There's no more disease. There's no more cancer. There's no more addiction. And he purifies us. His holiness purifies the cloudy, foggy haze that we're wandering through so we can see. Not so that we can see all the outcomes, but so that we can see Jesus. It sanctifies us. It clarifies us. It gives us truth that Jesus is abiding with us and we are abiding with him. And we see him. And what is he doing? He's praying. Because the third thing that Jesus prays for, for his disciples and for all of us, everyone who's coming, he says, for those who will believe in me through the word of the disciples, he's praying that they would be together with him and he would be together with them. He says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That they may be with me where I am. Where is Jesus? He's in heaven. Where are we? We're on earth. But what he's praying is that through the Holy Spirit, the two things would come together. And there would no longer be a separation between you and God, but that God would be dwelling in you. And you would be dwelling in God. One reason I believe so much of our experience with prayer can lead us to frustration or even discouragement is because there's not enough Jesus. There's too much of us worrying about if we're saying the right thing, if we're asking the right thing, if God is showing us the right thing. There's not enough Jesus. And in the high priestly Lord's prayer, we're seeing that the first step to prayer is to listen. Listen to the way that Jesus prays. Listen to what he is saying. Listen to how he is dealing with the things that you don't know how to deal with. He's dealing with it all right here, and his prayers don't stop just because he died. Because he rises and ascends and sends his Holy Spirit, he says in the last verse, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I may be in them. In other words, he's continuing to pray. And when you pray, you're abiding in him, and he's abiding in you, and you're praying together. That's how you discover who the Father is. 
That's how you discover this love that Jesus is talking about, the love which he had for his Father and then which is now in you. Prayer is more about love, I would say, than anything else. It is about love. It's not about what you're doing or how you're doing it. It is about Jesus' love for you. Jesus wants you to see his glory, to know God better. And the result of knowing God better is that God's love spills into you. The glory of Jesus is to see his love on the cross, giving himself up for you to see his glory in his servitude, washing your feet. That's a weighty authority. It's a glorious presence of the king, which would be so loving as to lower himself to our world and now return to his father in glory. And when we discover that love, then the devil can't divide us. One of the things that is the result of his prayer for him to be with us is that we would not be divided, that we would be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. One of the greatest hindrances to the gospel is discord, disunity, bitterness, gossip, stubbornness, cliques, sides. Every one of these things hinders and disrupts prayer and the gospel because it disrupts love. And when the world sees that happening in a church, the world says, well, there's nothing different going on in that place than there is out here, so I might as well keep on with what I'm doing. But there's, on the other hand, there's no greater witness to the gospel than when brothers are dwelling together in love, in unity, when Christians are reconciling, when they are forgiving each other, when they are sacrificing themselves, their own wants and desires for the sake of others. And the only way to ever get there is prayer and Jesus. To see Jesus praying for even the people that have upset you, hurt you, divided you, and hindered your spiritual life. It is praying together for each other. It gets us beyond the earthly relationships, the outward differences, the membership. Just tolerating one another is not enough for Jesus. He says instead that I may be in them and you may be in me and they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. So at the beginning, I asked you, would you rather be with Jesus in the upper room, listening to all of this firsthand and being at his table, sharing bread with him, listening to him pray, or would you rather be here in church, listening to Pastor David on the sixth sermon about the upper room? 
I know what Jesus would say. Jesus would say, there is far more to be discovered in what you're experiencing now in the pews, in your daily lives, knowing that Jesus has risen and ascended and sent his spirit to you, knowing that he is in heaven praying with you and for you than you could have ever experienced in that room. And if you lean into this, rely on it, abide with him as he abides with you, when you're around the tables and breaking bread with each other, and when it's culminating in prayers for one another, then you will know what it means to abide with Jesus. Amen.